I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Apple sales crush Wall Street estimate. Second quarter revenue surging 54% to $89.6 billion. Plus, a huge revenue beat for Facebook. The social network reporting sales of $26.17 billion, growing more than 47%, it marking at least nine straight revenue beats for Facebook. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And it has been a bumper week for America's tech giants, with Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft and Google all reporting yet another big jump in sales and profits in the first three months of the year. Between them, those five companies now make more in sales in a week than McDonald's manages in an entire year. The economist Philippe Aguillon thinks the rise of big tech was great for US innovation and economic growth for a while, but now not so much. He's written a book about creative destruction and the wealth of nations, and he has a plan for getting the best out of capitalists. You can find out what it is a bit later. France economy reporter William Horobin is also going to explain why the campaign to extract tax revenues from the tech giants just got a lot more interesting. But first, Let's set the scene with some new research from Bloomberg Economics, which brings home just how big the world's largest firms are today compared to a generation ago. The biggest 50 businesses in the world make profits of nearly $800 billion. That's close to 1% of global GDP. That may not sound so much, but that's three times higher than it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, there were also no Chinese companies in that group of 50. Now there are eight, and surprise, surprise, tech firms are much more evident than they were. 21 of the top 50 businesses are in the tech sector, up from just three in 1990. And there's a prize at the end for anyone who can name those three. Here's what else we know about those firms. They employ fewer workers and they pay less in tax. These 50 companies on average pay a tax rate of 17% of their profit and earn an average profit margin of 18%. Back in 1990, it was 34% of their profits that were taxed away and the profit margin was a puny 7%. So the numbers make clear why the tax authorities around the world should be so keen to do a global deal on corporate tax. More on that later. But there are broader implications from this changing global landscape for policy and for the shape of the economy. So time now to dig deeper with Chief Economist Tom Orlick, who co-wrote the research with his colleague uh, Justin Jimenez. Tom, welcome back to Stephanomics. At uh, at one level, uh, I guess it's not surprising, these numbers showing that the biggest firms are now much bigger than they were. But when you went through the numbers with Justin, what stood out for you? you? You hit a bunch of the big takeaways, Stephanie. The big firms are getting bigger, they're getting techier, they're getting more Chinese. A couple of other things which stood out for me. Firstly, that shift east has come mainly at the expense of Europe. If you look at the geographical composition of the top 50, the US is holding on to its share, China is rising, Europe is shrinking. That's pretty striking, especially when you consider the hostility to China that we see coming out of Washington, D.C., and the relatively friendly approach that we still hear from Berlin, Brussels, and other European capitals. 
The other big thing which I took away from it, and perhaps this is something we can get into in the conversation, is that with their increase in profitability, big firms are now sitting on a huge stash of cash. Back in 1990, cash holdings for the biggest 50 firms in the world was about 0.3% of global GDP. Fast forward to 2020, and it's all the way up to 2.2% of global GDP. And that has pretty far-reaching implications, especially for central banks. If the bigger firms are getting bigger and they don't really need to borrow, well, that raises some questions about the effectiveness of interest rates as a policy tool. Yeah, there is a, there's a lot to get in there. I mean, I guess one thing is that I already mentioned that they they pay less in tax and they uh, have got a higher profit margin. I guess one clear result of that is it's maybe not surprising that they're sitting on a big mountain of cash. Um, but I guess another reason why they've got lots of cash is that they don't invest as much as maybe their sort of predecessors might have done, the other big companies of of, of 20 or 30 years ago. Is, is that something that's borne out in your research, not just fewer workers, but also a bit less investment, less capital? That's right, Steph. So as we've seen the rise of the tech platforms, we've also seen capital spending starting to come down. Back in 1990, the top 50 firms in the world, and back then we're talking about big industrial firms like GE or Exxon, they're spending at the equivalent of about 7% of their revenue on capital spending, digging new oil wells, building new factories. 2020, with the rise of the tech platforms, who are more likely to expand by buying more capacity in the cloud than they are to do so by building a new factory. Um, Capex in 2020 is just above 4% of revenue for the biggest firms. So less workers, less capital spending as well. That's an important change in the way the economy operates. You know, if monetary policy is, is partly about increasing growth by making money more or less expensive to borrow uh, for investment, say, you know, that's what we learn what monetary policy is. That's one of the sort of traditional ways that you would learn. You reduce interest rates if you want to encourage businesses and households to borrow more and do more investment and support growth. I mean, I guess the message of these numbers is that that is a very old fashioned way of looking at the world, so at least when it comes to these big businesses, because the cost of borrowing isn't going to make any difference to them because they don't need to borrow at all. They have all this cash. We talked about the, uh, the drop in capital spending. We talked about the increase in cash. Now, if you put those two trends together, one of the really interesting things to come out of the data is that back in 1990, CAPEX was about three times cash on hand for the biggest firms in the world. In 2020, the biggest firms in the world have enough cash easily to cover all of their CAPEX for the year. They just don't need to borrow. And that immediately raises questions about how effective interest rates are as a tool for managing the ups and downs of the business cycle. Now, central banks could argue there's also a portfolio rebalancing effect, right? When you cut interest rates, yes, you're not going to change the investment saving decision for these firms, but you are going to encourage them to move their cash out of money market funds, for example, and put it into risk assets like equities, for example. And that will have an impact on risk appetite and drive growth for the broader economy. There's some truth in that argument, but relative to the kind of textbook definition of the kind of the muscular way in which interest rate policy changes investment decision by firms, that's a pretty weak read on which to lean for central banks. 
I mean, we're going to hear more about uh, creative destruction um, uh, later on in the programme. But, you know, obviously there is a big debate about whether having these big firms actually is good for, for growth and good for your economy. One of the things which comes through in the data is that the process of creative destruction is still at work. If we look at the top 50 firms in 2020 and compare that to the list of the top 50 firms in 2010, about 50% of the names are new. Um, and of course, that's related to the capacity of firms, especially in technology, to innovate on new products and new services and sweep away the position of what looked at the time like unassailable monopolies. Tom Orlick, thanks very much. Now, regular listeners will know this isn't the first time we've talked about the challenge of extracting a bit more tax out of big global companies, big tech companies in particular. Our France economy reporter, William Horobin, gave us a heads up at the end of the year about the global talks on this that were underway at that think tank headquartered in Paris, the OECD. And we also, in that programme, had an exclusive interview with the top OECD official who was tasked with getting this big global deal. He said that this was going to be a make or break year for the global corporate tax debate. And I think I thought at the time that I'd heard that before. But, you know, it just might be, thanks to President Biden. So Will Horobin is, is back with us now to explain what's happening. Will, you might have to talk very slowly and carefully, but uh, what has happened and why does it matter what President Biden has done? Okay, so... It is notoriously complicated how to unpick these negotiations that are going on. But I think that I found a simple way of thinking about it is to say that we're looking at how much big firms pay worldwide in tax and where they pay it. So um, these are the two things that basically really the OECD has been negotiating for years and years and years, but they've been blocked in sort of political intransigence and impossibility of getting a deal with Trump mainly. Um, so along comes Biden and he says, look, I've got, I'm going to make two proposals, one for each of your problems of where do you pay tax and how much is paid. So let's perhaps start with the question of how much, which is this idea of a minimum tax. Now, actually, that was actually pretty uncontroversial in these talks. Um, everyone agrees that it'd be a great idea to have a minimum tax but what Biden does um, is he really gives the proposal, gives it some teeth because he's putting, he's suggested a 21% minimum tax rate. Um, while talks until now had been focusing on 12.5%. So how does the minimum tax work? Very simplistically, and this is very simplistically, um, <laughs> say a US company pays 10% corporate tax in, in country A. Um, with a minimum rate at 21%, the US would then be able to say, I'm going to take the missing 11% in tax. So effectively, they're going to be paying 21%. Now, the question is, will this actually happen? Now, countries are quite optimistic on agreeing on the architecture of how you could put this together, although the rate may not end up being 21%, partly because that will depend on the US Congress um, and Biden getting agreement there. Also, there are countries like Ireland for years have made themselves competitive places to attract investment by having rates as, um, I think their rate is 12.5%. So you may end up with a rate that's, you know, a bit, a bit below that, a bit below the 
if there's an agreement. I mean, I guess we should ask ourselves, you know, what's at stake here? How much more tax could this produce for the world's government? Well, according to the OECD, at the end of last year, before Biden made the proposals, um, based on their work, that with this minimum tax of 12.5%, um, you'd be increasing global tax revenues by $100 billion. So it's a pretty big question. Now, Biden comes along with um, a rate that's you know significantly higher than that. And so you're talking about potentially much bigger numbers. And what about where? Uh, now, where? Where this tax is paid. <laughs> where that has for a long time been the much more trickier, much thornier issue that's been a, a bigger divide intellectually between the US and Europe. With Europe saying, hey, the big winners are the digital companies and we want to go after them. We want, we want a chunk of the tax that you get to collect on Google, say. Because Google, because Google sells all this stuff in our country and we don't get any tax yeah. revenues from Google. Google doesn't really have a physical presence maybe in our country, but it's everywhere, right? It's, it's, it's really like embedded in our economy and we want, we want a share of, of that. Um, now, for, for always, the US had said, we're not ring-fencing digital companies. Europe had been saying, we want digital companies. Biden comes along and says, look, actually, let's just be honest here. What we're trying to do is go after the winners of globalization. So rather than worrying about what a company does, we just say, we'll, we'll take the 100 biggest companies, we'll look at their profitability as a, as a measure, and maybe their revenue, and work out what, who the 100 biggest are. And then we divide up the rights to tax them based on their presence in their, the business they do in countries. And so it's relatively simple, relatively elegant, um, has lots of advantages. It's easier to enforce. It's easier to understand. Politically, it sells well because, you know, people, people want to go after the big guys. They don't want to go after the small tech company that's perhaps doing a few million of business in country X but not paying any tax there. Now, there's one thing that they're working on now is the parameters of how do you decide what these, who these hundred companies are? And that's when it gets tricky. And so that's, that's what's going on at the moment is, you know, there's lots of technocrats behind the scenes in various European governments trying to work out exactly, exactly who, which companies they might get to tax a bit off. If, if there isn't a deal at the OECD, all these countries are going to go ahead with these taxes on on digital revenues, which everyone agrees, even though they're using them, are, are a sort of unfair and, and economically inefficient taxation. I had the sense that the, the, the Biden proposal, the sort of change of approach coming out of the White House in response on, on, on these issues was kind of opening the way to a deal on both pieces, including this digital piece. But is that, is that not quite right? I mean, is it still looking quite difficult to get a deal in the next six months or so? I think I think the the big change uh, is that there is now political will to get a deal, whereas before the Trump administrations made things very difficult. It was sort of a game of cat and mouse. We didn't really know what was going on, and the whole thing stalled. But now there is a clear political will um, to get a deal on both these on both these issues um, of of where they pay and how much they pay these big multinational companies. And, it, and it's for a, a similar message that's the political message that's coming out of the crisis, which is that, you know, these companies have benefited hugely from globalization without paying the cost. And as I understand it, part, part of the narrative in many countries is explaining how globalization is still is still the, the answer for, for the middle classes. Say. So 
there's this will that, is, that comes from Biden and is shared by many European countries to, to find a, a sort of political solution that they can sell to their sell to voters. Well, we're going to get into that in a, in a sort of broad way uh, with our next interviewee. But, Will, I, I can imagine, you know, in, in, when you read uh, sort of history books around about foreign correspondence, the Paris job has got a great sort of romance to it. I bet when you when you got this gig, you weren't necessarily thinking that you were going to have to become a tax expert. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't necessarily my intention. But, um, you know... <laughs> uh, the Marshall Plan put the OECD here, it. so I'm going to love it. <laughs> well, and you're getting quite a lot of stories these days. Uh, you're t- the time in the time in the sun when it comes to textiles. Will Horbin, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm delighted now to be talking to Philippe Aguillon, professor at the Collège de France and INSEAD and the London School of Economics, who is one of the most respected experts on the economics of innovation and growth. He has a book out which pulls some of that thinking together, The Power of Creative Destruction, Economic Upheaval and the Wealth of Nations. And he seemed like just the person to talk to on this podcast about the pros and cons of this changing global landscape that we've been talking about with the rise of these uh, enormous firms. Thank you very much, Philippe, Professor Aguillon, for joining us. Um, You have always focused on innovation in your work and the relationship between innovation and growth. Um, If you think about the rise of these of these global mega firms, should we think that's a a good or a bad thing uh, for innovation or or does the size of companies not really matter? Uh, The rise of these uh, big firms, I mean, uh, uh, took place very much, uh, you know, with, with the advent of IT, the IT and AI revolutions. Uh, that helped a lot because with the uh, information technology and artificial intelligence revolution, you can do many more things. It allows anybody to do many more things. And some firms that had better connections, better networks, more advanced social capital, they could do that better than others. And they took huge advantage of it. So at first, that was very good for growth in the US between 95 and 2005. Growth went up in the US when those firms, you know, pervaded, uh, became like hegemonic, invaded all the sectors of the economy. But then what happened is that once they did, uh, it inhibited innovation, it discouraged innovation and entry by other firms. And that's where growth started to go down. And since 2005 in the US, you observe a growth decline very much associated with the fact that these mega firms, somehow they, they discourage others from innovating, that there is a discouragement effect. So is it good or bad? It's always good to have innovation, but you have to make sure that the firms that innovated yesterday will not discourage future innovations. And that's really much the, the, the Schumpeter Day dilemma. You want to give rents to innovators, but you want to make sure they don't use these rents or these rents of situation rents to uh, prevent subsequent innovation. So you always have this contradiction. Your book is called The Power of Creative Destruction, which yeah, is the classic right. uh, Schumpeter uh, phrase. And I guess that is the, 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 the dilemma. You want a company to be destroying others and providing that kind of competition, but then not just destroy all future competition as well. I guess when people hear that description, they might well think of Amazon in, in particular. Exactly. And in the book, we explain how the triangle between firms, the state, and civil society 
that triangle may succeed in averting Schumpeter's pessimism. Schumpeter thought that inventors would become conglomerates and that the conglomerates would be successful at preventing subsequent innovation. So he was very pessimistic. In this book, we show that you can overcome that pessimism. You can replace it by an optimism of the will and that you know the state with competition policy, with various, with the separation of powers can do a lot, but it needs also the control of civil society and state and civil society together can avert the pessimistic prediction of Schumpeter and have creative destruction keep being an ongoing process. Well, you're, and your book is very optimistic, at least about the, the, the potential for, for governments to, to sort of seize this, this process with civil society. We'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. But I guess just to yeah. step back a little bit, you know, we're both sitting uh, right now anyway in Europe, and there tends to be a lot of soul searching in Europe about the lack of, of big global firms that have come out of Europe, and even a discussion around wanting to have European champions to sort of take yeah. on the US. If what you're saying, maybe the European shouldn't be so concerned about having a smaller number in that top 50. No, in fact, they should be very concerned because when the problem in the US is they are very good. They have a fantastic ecosystem of innovation in the US. In biotech, for example, you have the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Only that is for fundamental research in biotech. And you have venture capital, you have institutional investors. You have a huge, fantastic ecosystem of innovation in the US. The problem in the US is competition policy. You have to adapt competition policy to the digital era. For example, when deciding whether to allow or not a merger and acquisition, you should ask whether it will stifle future innovation and entry. That's where uh, the US, the problem is lack of competition and lobbying. You know, that's where the problem is. In Europe, the problem is that we don't even have the ecosystem of innovation. You see what I mean? We tend to be good on competition through uh, EU, the Competition Commission, although I don't always agree with them. Uh, uh, but we don't have the ecosystem of innovation. What you want is both. You want the innovation and the competition. Uh, Europe, uh, they don't even have the ecosystem of innovation. So they have competition without the innovation. And if- yeah, they have competition without innovation, and, and US have a bit of innovation without, the, without adequate competition. But I mean, the most difficult is to set up the innovation system. Just thinking briefly about this global tax debate, you know, we see the numbers that show these big companies overall paying much less in tax than 20, 30 years ago. Um, If we actually got better at taxing these footloose global firms, is that do do you worry about them that making them less dynamic, less innovative? No, I think at that stage, I think it would be very good to have, you know, I'm not for overtaxing. In France, for example, we used to overtax. You see what I mean? In France, we, only, we tax inputs. Even if you make zero profit and you buy some inputs, I tax you already. That, I think, is very bad. So France was on the other extreme. But starting from the, you know, the end of Trump period in the U.S., Biden is right to raise tax and the IMF is right to recommend that everywhere the corporate income tax be no less than 21%. I think that's very good. You need taxation for various reasons. You need to tax to finance education system, uh, public health, infrastructure, uh, good uh, active employment policy, active labor market policy. All that you need to tax for that. And, uh, uh, and that, you know, that, that Biden is right to do it. And, uh, uh, but on the other hand, you need also competition policy and you need also not to discourage innovators. So overtaxing is not good. Taxing some is good, 
overtaxing discourages innovation. But innovation is very interesting. It's good for growth. It's good also for social mobility. That's what we explain in the book. It is a very spirited defense of, of, of capitalism in that sense, the sort of the right kind of, of capitalism. You say in the book that governments can get the growth benefits of innovation without the inequality. But how, how do you do that? You have to make sure, I mean, inequality to, to make sure that you have inclusive growth. That's what you're after. You want growth to be inclusive. So you have to act at several stages. The first stage is education. You need good quality education for everyone, like in Finland. You know, Finland is a model of education system. So you need very good education system because at school, you don't only learn material, you learn to learn. You learn how to learn. And more and more, when you are in an economy of creative destruction, where you change jobs often, you have to continuously recycle, retrain, learn new things, adapt. That's what you learn at school. You, at your school, you learn to learn. You organize your mind to learn to learn. So the education is crucial. Then in, at firms, you have to encourage firms to create good jobs, jobs that qualify workers. And we know that more innovative firms create more good jobs. We show that in the book. Uh, that's very important. And then you have, of course, the other instruments like competition policy. We, I told you about the big firms in the U.S., Competition policy is very important because it allows entry of new, of new people. We know creative destruction is also not only a, a, a force of growth, but it's also a lever of social mobility. So it's important to have good competition policy and to fight lobbies in order to have entry. That's a very important uh, dimension. Another dimension is to prevent the rich to uh, bribe governments or to finance campaigns I thought it was a bad thing when in the US, uh, the Supreme Court allowed private companies to finance political campaigns without limits, because then you bias the rich, buy out the system. You don't want that. Uh, in Scandinavia, for example, uh, it's very difficult to do that. Uh, you know, in Sweden, a minister had to resign uh, because she had bought a Toblerone chocolate with uh, with the credit card of the ministry, I think it was something like this. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, well, uh, you have to be like Sweden in that, or Denmark, you know, uh, in that respect. So it's very important that, you know, I am not against having rich people. In Sweden, you have rich people because they became rich through innovating. Uh, but I want, I don't want them to, pre to stifle uh, competition. I don't want them to bias the political game. And I want entry and I want opportunities for all. So that's education, competition, progressive taxation, uh, rules for political companies. All those things are, are in fighting lobbies are important uh, elements of a competition policy and uh, inclusive growth. You have, uh, you have a great phrase in your book. You say, capitalism is a spirited horse. It takes off readily, escaping control. But if we hold its reins firmly, it goes where we wish. If you look at what President Biden's been doing, bringing out packages that we discussed in the previous program yeah. uh, worth trillions of dollars, some of it paid for by big taxes on companies, um, yeah. big increases in taxes on companies. Do you think he's, he's seizing the reins in the right way? Look, what I can say, it's a bit early to say, okay? Uh, I have sympathy for him. Uh, it's a bit early to say. I mean, what's true, what the COVID crisis revealed is that the social model in the US is broken. We saw many people losing health insurance because they lose employment, because they lost employment. We saw many people going, uh, going into poverty because they lost their, their job. 
And uh, so the, the social model is broken in US. What the COVID revealed is that the innovation ecosystem in Europe is not working. So US has to build a new social model. Now, Biden, will Biden succeed? We will see, he's spending a lot of money. But I think what's important is to see whether, uh, and the jury is still out, whether Biden will succeed in setting up in labor market institutions like you have in Denmark. You know, in Denmark, when you lose your job, you, there is no negative effect on health. You know why? Because they have what we call flex security. When someone loses, loses her job or his job, they have perfect uh, income insurance and they are retrained and the state helps them find a new job. If they refuse too many job offers, then they lose the, the subsidy. But at least they are never left on the road. If you lose your job in Denmark, the state takes care of you and helps you retrain and find a new job. If the US could put a system like the, the Danish system, that would be a big progress. You see, to, to really have and, to, and also guarantee uh, health access and education to everyone, that would be major progress. They are still very far from it. So it's good Biden is aware of that. I don't know if Biden will be able to set up permanent welfare state you know, with this kind of institution there. That the, the jury is still out. I hope he will. It's not yet the case. It will take very long. In Europe, the big problem is to set up innovation institutions. We need the equivalent of the BARDA, of the DARPA, of the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. We need the equivalent of the American universities, of the NSF, of the National Science Foundation. Of the, we, we need the, all that to, to be, you know, venture capital is underdeveloped in Europe. Uh, institutional investors are underdeveloped compared to US. We need this ecosystem of innovation. So it's very interesting. US needs to, to reinvent its social model. Europe needs to reinvent its innovation model. And my dream capitalism is one that would combine the innovation model of the US and the Danish social system. That would be fantastic. See, on Stefanomics, we give you our dream capitalism. Thank you very much, Professor Philippe Aguillon. Thank you so much. I have to say, for a different take on creative destruction and Amazon, you could do a lot worse than read my colleague Brad Stone's excellent new book, Amazon Unbound. And in case there's anyone out there who was waiting to find out who the three tech companies were in the top 50 global firms in 1990. They were IBM, Japan's NEC Corporation, and the French tech company Alcatel. Hmm, I don't know about you, I only got one of those. Now that is it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back with more next week. In the meantime, please rate the programme. Thank you. Also, get more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced, as ever, by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Professor Philippe Aguillon, Tom Orlick, Justin Jimenez and William Horobin. Lucy Meekin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Listener.